well, we might need to be a bit more flexible with the way that we consider our children's friendships and to see that, you know, even online time can be a useful adjunct, although, you know, very different, say, than scrolling through TikTok videos. You know, it's just really starting to get more nuanced about, well, how are kids using their online time and how are their friendships evolving? Welcome to the ADHD Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm an ADHD professional who's been working in the field for 10 years. I'm well known for my wall of awful model, and I'm on the organizing committee for the International Conference on ADHD, as well as a board member of the Men's ADHD Support Group. In today's episode, we talk to Rebecca Rolland. Rebecca is an author, speech-language pathologist, and lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Rebecca talks to us about her book, The Art of Talking with Children. We discuss the zone of proximal development, the role of temperament in conversation, the principles of social talk, and boundary setting. All right, let's get rolling. So I'm a mom of two kids. I have a five-year-old boy and 10-year-old girl, as well as a speech-language pathologist. Um, I've worked in hospitals and schools and a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And you're here to talk about your new book, The Art of Talking with Children, which is awesome. Thank you. My audience at this point knows that I tend to geek out about the structure of books before we go into the content of books. And I hope they don't mind. But to me, it's important that particularly parents with ADHD, parents who are busy, like all parents are, know that a book is easy to get at. Like, And what I mean by that is not that it's easy to go to the like library and find it, but that when you open the book, it's easy to access the kind of information that you want to access. And that's exactly how this book is built. I mean, there's subheadings, which always makes me happy when I read nonfiction, because not every nonfiction book does that. And the ones that don't drive me bananas. But there, there's subheadings, there's the occasional image to give you an idea of what you just cracked the book open to, which is particularly good for folks with ADHD, because we don't usually start on page one. We start on page like 58 or something. We just kind of grab it and wherever our thumb is, it opens up to that page and we see what's going on. Wherever you open this book up to, you're going to find something useful. I'll be honest, this book is a, it's, it's one of the thicker books that's come through my podcast. So you might crack the book open and have to flip forward or back a page or two to find a subheading that's going to explain to you what's going on, but that's okay. And it's, it's so good. There's so much good stuff in here, a lot of which we're going to talk about and I'm going to ask about. But one of the things that I want to bring up is this book is deceptively large. Because it's uh, it's got a very thorough notes section that ADHD parents may or may not care about, which makes it significantly thicker than it actually is. It's maybe a quarter, nah, maybe a fifth of it is notes. And there's also, ladies and gentlemen, mom and dads, be excited for what I'm about to say, because this is awesome. There is a 15-page appendix that is nothing but conversation starters for you to use with your kids. I know how badly that is needed because I've had many parents ask me to do that, and I have, but I have not provided 15 pages worth of conversation starters. It's great. I can't express to you how excited I am about the fact that there's 15 pages of conversation starters in the back of this book. Thank you. (laughs) And they're tailored by age and topic and like... They're useful. They're not stuff that you're going to go, what do I do with this? Even, Even the structure of those conversation starters is going to help you access and find what you need. I appreciate that a lot. And I definitely did structure this book in a way that makes it easy to access. And also, so you don't have to read the whole book as we talked about. So there's, 
you know, there's conversations for learning, the conversations for empathy, and each chapter is structured by a theme. So if there's one theme that you particularly want to focus on, whether it's, you know, confidence, play, creativity, you can flip to that chapter and really focus there and then also focus on the conversation starters based on that. So I really did design it kind of as a jigsaw puzzle where you can read the whole thing or you can also just take a piece of it as you need um, and then come back to it later if there's something else that interests you. I especially am interested in sort of the learning aspect um, coming from the education world, but I'm happy to start kind of whatever sparked your interest as well. Let's go with learning. I am also from the education world, so I'm comfortable there. Yeah, so part of what I wanted to do was really to think about changing the framework um, of how we often think about talking with kids. So we often think, especially with learning, of, you know, what's the point I want to teach and how do I get that point across? And that's all good educational practice to think about, well, how am I going to say what I want to say? But I found that so often we don't think about the other side, which is just what children are saying back and kind of what's the quality of their answers and how can we actually support them to think bigger, to actually expand their ideas, to dream of other things, to think beyond the here and now. So my work really focuses not just on what we say, but actually on the questions and prompts and ways of expanding children's thinking so that actually what they say is more interesting, more engaging, kind of builds their thinking skills also. That leads me directly to my, to literally my first sticky note in the book. So I want to play with that for a second because some of what is going to play a role in getting our kids to talk is the zone of proximal development. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is a big topic in educational theory. And the idea is that we want to find ways of supporting children to stretch, but not so much that they can't do it, you know, that it's so far out of their zone, but also not so little that they're kind of stuck with where they are. So the zone of proximal development is kind of that area where you can get kids to go with a little bit of prompting, with some support, um, with a little bit of encouragement. And actually by going there, they're building their skills and they're also building their connection to you. So it's kind of that sweet spot where you feel like, oh, I'm really you know, enjoying the flow of this conversation. It's really you know, helping children think and they're actually getting something out of it as well. One of my kids, he is a wicked introvert. I, you might be surprised to learn, am an extrovert. Sometimes what to me doesn't seem hard for him is pretty challenging. So often after school, I'm going, hey, who did you talk to? What did you do at lunch? What was going on at recess? Those kinds of questions, none of which get me anywhere because he's an introvert and I'm beyond his zone of proximal development. And a little while ago, I was like, Brendan, you're an idiot. Like he's an introvert ask him questions that are better for an introvert. You're asking extrovert questions because that's your bias. Fix it. And so I said to him, Gav, what is the most middle school thing that you observed someone else doing today? Oh, wow. That's great. Because <laughs> he looks at watches instead of in engaging, right? Because he's an introvert. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It was great. I got so much information out of him. I don't think it's a question I can lean on too heavily. I think it's like a once a month and not like on the 14th of every month, like randomly, I think is the only way that question will continue to work. But it it went really well. And, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's because I found his zone of proximal development that I was able to get the information from him in that way. 
Definitely. Yeah. So I, I would definitely say I love that. And I think that it's the zone of proximal development and equally just responding to his style. So the fact that he's probably spent all day thinking about things, observing people, noticing things, and you're kind of, you know, you're respecting that and you're kind of celebrating that through your question. You know, you actually want to hear about that. Uh, and I think that, that's so great because we often don't actually consider that. When I say zone of proximal development, right, my thought process there is going to talk to other people at the moment is outside of his zone of proximal development, like being an extrovert and, and engaging with a lot of kids at lunch. But observing those kids is deeply in his zone of proximal development, partially because of his temperament and kind of his style and who he is, um, and partially because of where his experiences have developed strengths, right? Because he's an introvert, he doesn't tend to talk to a lot of kids. Randomly talking to people is not something he's going to do. So when I ask questions about that, it doesn't get us anywhere. But he is observing. And so he's got more experience there. He's got really good observation skills. So he can talk more about that as a result. Actually, what I also think is great, too, and something that I think the listeners could really benefit from is also that you're taking what he's probably already noticing and kind of from an adult perspective, you're giving him that layer of like the most middle school thing, you know, so he might notice and be like, oh, that's kind of weird. I haven't noticed that before and kids. And but as an adult, you're sort of saying like, well, here you can actually sort of start to notice like that this is a middle school thing and like start to label things like that. Um, and I think that probably is interesting for him also to think about like, oh, this is a middle school thing, you know, versus, oh, that was an elementary school thing earlier or something like that. And some of that is me knowing my kid, right? Because my my guys are gifted. Gavin in particular is like kind of over it in some ways. He's kind of like, I just I just wish I was in high school so that I people would be more mature and stop doing stupid things. Like that's kind of him in some ways. Not Not quite as obnoxious as I just was, but you get the idea. So calling it a middle school thing, like I'm playing a little bit with that view of it's dumb. And I think that's the sense of humor there, too, is great, because sometimes we can get really wrapped up in wanting answers from kids and kind of forgetting that playfulness. We've touched on temperament a little bit. That's one of my favorite topics to talk about, because I think we so often forget how conversation is expressed in temperament and how we actually can get so much more from kids and have so much more richer relationships if we're actually responding to temperament. Uh, I've seen that so much with my two kids, especially one is much more introverted than the other. And they oftentimes don't understand without some kind of explanation or working through, you know, why is my sibling responding in this way to be, you know, to these new people? Or why are they wanting so much alone time or this kind of thing? So actually taking the time to talk through those differences, I think is so key. I'm a licensed guidance counselor. When I was going through my training for school guidance and school counseling, I worked with a, with a guidance counselor who was the ultimate extrovert. Like she was such an extrovert. Thankfully, when I did this training, I was like in my late thirties, early forties. So I was like, we, we could discuss things as peers. I wasn't like a 20 year old working with a 50 year old or something. And so she kept trying to get all these introverted kids to be more extroverted. And I said to her one day, I was like, I don't think it's working because they're just not interested. And it's, I was like, it's sort of like, they're full of people. Like if you gave this kid a huge chocolate cake, the extroverts are the ones that are going to want to eat the whole cake. And the introverts are the ones that are going to be happy with a really small slice and are going to feel terrible and get sick if they eat the whole cake. And these kids seem to just need a little slice of people. They like their three friends are plenty for them. They don't need to know everybody in the school. And that reframe ended up being really helpful for the rest of the school year with that particular group of kids, because they were 
they were content with what they had and she was able to see that and stopped pushing them as hard to get into clubs and engage with their peers and all that stuff. We still tried to get them a little more sure, sure. engaged, but not as much as we weren't pushing them as far. So then that circles back to that zone of proximal development. Yeah. And I definitely also think just that so often in schools and in our culture in general, we're so extrovert focused and sort of celebrate the extrovert and kind of like that's the norm of you should be extroverted. And why don't you do this? Why don't you have more friends? Um, And I think, yeah, just to actually have the conversations to check in with kids about, well, how are you feeling with your number of friends or how are you feeling with your level of, you know, activities or level of people interactions? And to see if it seems like a problem. It's almost like if it is a problem, it's definitely something to work on. But if they don't perceive it as a problem, that definitely gives us a different perspective. Um, and I've seen so many kids where, you know, they may have two or three friends, but they're totally content versus other kids who have seemed to have a lot of friends and still feel lonely. So really getting that perspective, I think, is just so important to figure out what to do next. And related to that, something we talked about pre-recording is the role that COVID and the worldwide pandemic and the trauma event that we've all lived through, especially kids, it's had a much more significant impact on them, the role that that's playing on social skills. And also, I would imagine, on extroversion, introversion, and where kids are landing on that spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I do think I've seen so many teachers and so many kids where they'll say, you know, even the most typical or most extroverted kids are figuring out again, well, how do I have friends? Or how do I know if this person is still my friend? Uh, you know, how do I engage with conversations? How do I, you know, argue with my friend without leaving the friendship? There's just all of these questions that without a practice, these skills kind of can, you know, be really hard to maintain. And I think especially for younger kids who've never really fully developed the skills. And, you know, during COVID, we're very isolated. I think they're struggling especially. Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, so definitely. And I, in my book, I really do focus on um, social skills. So there's a whole chapter on how to help children socialize. And the idea is really how can we be a reflective partner and a guide for kids? So it's really not about getting in there in the moment and micromanaging relationships. But it's also not about this common misconception that, you know, kids will just figure it out themselves. Like kids will, kids are fine to be on their own. They'll make friends, they'll lose friends. You know, kids actually do really want a partner and someone to help them think through friendship issues. And oftentimes they really need that and support. So if we can get past that kind of lecturer and director perspective with kids and get more to that conversation partner and guide perspective, it can be really helpful actually to give kids a model and role play even, you know, what is... What would happen if you tried out this? What ideas do you have for responding? You know, how can you respect yourself and also respect that other person? Let's try out some conversations and giving them some potential ideas and seeing how they respond. You know, not to say, oh, this is the right way to do it. I think we so often, especially with middle and high schoolers, you know, things are changing and the right way for us, quote unquote, might not be the right way for them, what's sort of culturally appropriate in their friend group. But to recognize that this is what I might do, or, you know, this is how I might think about it. What do you think about that? And kind of getting that back and forth is really critical. And I I think it's important that we recognize as adults that what we think is a normal idyllic childhood or whatever word you want to put in there is not how our kids are operating anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And I do think it's so funny because uh, actually I can give you an example with my own kids that my daughter who's 10 recently or almost 11 recently changed schools. 
And she still has an extremely close group of friends with her old, her old school. And she hasn't seen them very much because we've been busy going to her new school. And so I've seen her a couple of evenings before dinner. She'll be playing Roblox with her friends, calling her friends from her old school while playing Roblox together and chatting and arguing about various aspects of the game. You know, and I think before all of this and before writing my book, I might have thought, oh, you know, that's screen time. We shouldn't be doing that. That's, you know, video games. But really, when you think about, well, how is screen time being used? What kind of relationships are coming out of it? You can see that, oh, this is a chance for them essentially to play a game together, to talk together as they look at something that's, some, you know, the same, even though they're in their own houses and to have a chance to reconnect. And you wouldn't want to do that all the time. So I wouldn't suggest that, you know, we change from friendships to, you know, online role playing. But um, but to really think about, well, we might need to be a bit more flexible with the way that we consider our children's friendships and to see that, you know, even online time can be a useful adjunct, although, you know, very different, say, than scrolling through TikTok videos. You know, it's just really starting to get more nuanced about, well, how are kids using their online time and how are their friendships evolving? Because that online time, sometimes it's just a distraction and escapism like TikTok. Sometimes it's social connection like Roblox. In a lot of ways, Roblox is a virtual playground where kids are hanging out on the same playground. Exactly. And it also is used as a tool where we're doing research and those sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's what's so important to recognize about computers and screen time. It's just that they really are a mechanism. You know, it depends on what are, what are they being used for um, rather than just let's look at the number of hours you're on the screen. I mean, I even like look at my search history sometimes and we'll be like, what's the biggest shark? Where do rabbits turn their heads when they're sleeping? You know, these things and I'm like, who looked these things up? You know, um, but yeah, I think if kids are finding answers to questions, I wouldn't say we don't, you know, we don't talk with them about those. But I think when it's used in the process of something collaborative, something research oriented in the service of finding answers to something, I do think that's such a different idea um, than something that's, you know, sinking kids into social comparisons or to just passive scrolling. So I do make this big distinction as between sort of pa passive and active interactions. And then also, are, is it isolating or is it collaborative? So, you know, is there a sense of, okay, I'm going to research this and then come back and talk about it or engage with it with other people? Or is this something that's kind of going further into my own world? So I think those distinctions are really important to keep in mind. And even that isolating versus collaborative, we have to be really thoughtful about, right? My guys found, one of them is called Random Encounters. They're these music groups, right? That write songs about video games. So my kids were like listening to songs about Five Nights at Freddy's. And I was like, uh, this has got to be isolating, right? Like how niche and weird is that, right? Like that's yeah, yeah. deep, deep niche. And then sure enough, I got the whole crew in my car, driving them to an amusement park two summers ago, and all of the kids are singing these songs. That's so funny. Yeah, it's not that niche, I guess. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's what's so great is that sometimes these things can really help build these little subcultures and kind of build familiarity and community um, with these things that might seem like so out of the way, but they actually are bonding, which is great. Playing with the social stuff a little more and going back to the book. This is page 207, ladies and gentlemen. You've got principles of social talk, sort of the, the bullet points. We want these social talk to be aspirational, but we also want to compare aspirations to reality. 
We want to help our children make the changes that they want to make and then evaluate how those changes are going. Can we play with that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I especially think a lot about friendships with kids and especially as they get older, the fact that we can't micromanage who our children choose to be friends with. And if we try, as you know, I know many parents and I've tried myself to say, oh, this friend isn't good for you. You know, let's just not see the friend or let's why don't you not play with that friend? Um, that really often is counterproductive because eventually, as soon as you're not there, there's going to be the child wanting even more to play with that friend, um, probably getting into more uh, stressful situations and then maybe even not wanting to tell you about it because you've banned them from the friend. So I think there really should be a different way that's more collaborative and also just more coaching oriented to support kids to think about, well, how is this friendship actually making me feel? How is it respecting me and how am I respecting that friend or not? And then what might I want to be different? So actually helping children to set those goals for themselves and to see, you know, is this going along with my values? Do I feel sad or disrespected or angry every time I interact with this friend? And especially helping them notice patterns. So it's one thing to say, oh, my friend said something mean to me. You know, but it's another thing to say, oh, my friend is always saying mean things to me or is always getting other people to say mean things about me. You know, it's a very different situation. So to actually help kids make those distinctions and think about their friendships kind of at a more metacognitive level um, can really help them in actually making those value judgments themselves. And that also leads us to boundary setting which I know tons and tons of adults who are struggling with that, who are not sure what to do with boundaries or how to navigate them. And my hope is that as parents are more likely to have these kinds of conversations, like the one you're describing with their kids, our kids are learning how to set boundaries as they grow up and aren't going to have to figure it out when they're 37. Exactly. Yeah. And I do, I've even given the example with my own kids of just, you know, they tell me something or they tell me about something, interactions that's been happening. And, uh, you know, I say, I hadn't even thought about it, but then you sort of model your own value judgments in that situation. So I had said to them at one point, you know, if that were me, I really wouldn't want to be treated like that. Like, I don't, I don't like it when people treat me like that or when people ignore me after I've asked them questions or when people, you know, so just to hear from an adult, you know, that you actually wouldn't want to be treated in that way. For some kids, it's kind of a wake up call like, oh, you know, I didn't realize that you can not like something and say that, you know, and actually sort of set that boundary in a way that's respecting yourself. So I think to just have those conversations early and especially if we can get away from telling kids kind of this is what you should do and even model that sense of like, well, how would you feel in that situation? That can also build empathy. And sometimes we have to go in the opposite direction too. my son, Nate, Gavin too, but Nate had a stronger response to this particular experience in elementary school. He, they both hung out with a kid and it was always where we have to do what that kid wants to do. That was the nature of that relationship. Constantly they were doing what that kid wanted to do. He never let them do what they wanted to do. And Nate has sort of hit the point where he's like, I'm just not doing anything that I don't want to do and too bad. Right. And I'm like, dude, sometimes it's one thing if you like definitively do not want to do it, but if you're just not interested, you should do that thing so that you can create a relationship with this kid that you're trying to be friends with a little bit. And if it's totally anathema to you, okay, cool. Don't do that thing. That's fine. But if it's just something that you don't love, but you don't hate it, you can engage in that activity for a little while to hook another friend in and then try to pivot to something else. That's a valid strategy. 
Yeah. And I think especially just that brings to mind for me the idea of helping kids be more flexible too. So some kids will have a really rigid understanding of, you know, either we do my thing or we don't play or either we do X or Y and sort of saying, you know, well, there are other options. You could do it this way. You know, to, some kids haven't actually thought that through. So to even offer that flexibility is so great. One of the things that's come up throughout this conversation is play in general, right? Because that's so much of a kid's life, elementary school into high school, even into adulthood. What is the role of play in a kid's life? Why do we need to figure out how to communicate around it? Definitely. Yeah. So I think this is one of my favorite topics and one that I think we especially have kind of a lot of misconceptions as a culture about. Um, we often think about play either for young kids, you know, in preschool, you can play, but then as we get older, we don't really think about play or, you know, much more an organized sport. So kids are kind of playing in very directed ways, but not necessarily playful. So I really think about distinguishing just play as the activity from something called playful thinking and learning. And this is where kids are approaching ideas, you know, from a more generative perspective. So being allowed to brainstorm, being allowed to be wrong and try out new things. Um, I think that is so critical, as is the time for actual play, meaning unstructured time, time to create, time to explore, and not just for three-year-olds, but for adults, for high schoolers, for middle schoolers. And I think especially when we're in this time when so many kids are so anxious and kind of very perfectionistic, to re-emphasize play for all ages, I think is so important as kind of an antidote to a lot of that. You also talk about in the book how playful conversations can break up arguments. Can you explore that a little bit? Definitely. Yeah. So I've seen that so often in families I've worked with and also in my own kids um, that you can get in the kind of these spirals where you get really frustrated and upset and kids are kind of digging down into something that, you know, if you step away for a minute is actually kind of funny, you know, so it'd be something like my son has been like, I can't have only half. I have to have three quarters of it. I have to, you know, and we'll just get like extremely upset and start crying, you know, and you think like, well, okay. And you're going back and forth. There's more upset. And oftentimes those triggers kind of build on each other. So as if we take it seriously and we kind of get upset by that, children get more and more dysregulated by our dysregulation and respond to that. So it can be really helpful to actually step back, just take a moment and then reapproach the situation from a more playful angle, kind of keeping in your own mind, you know, this is kind of a more minor situation than that I'm making it out to be. You know, sometimes we can get really entrenched in our own thinking as well. And I think taking that other perspective can help regulate a child, but also can help them feel like, okay, my parent understands and kind of can laugh with me rather than just keep digging down to the same points. While also being mindful that we don't want to further deregulate our kid because we're not taking the thing seriously enough. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I do think to validate the emotion if there is a lot of upset, so not just to be jokey and playful, um, but to see if you can gently guide the child to see that, okay, there might be humor in the situation or there might be a way out that we haven't thought about. You know, like, what about if we all pretend to be dinosaurs and do something else? You know, so actually try try out different strategies that feel right for your family, but that actually allow for maybe a different perspective. One of the things I do with my kids is when I ask them a question and they're, I don't think they're telling quite the truth. Not that they're lying to me, but there's more to it than that. Or they're maybe just trying to get out of the conversations. They're like, no, no, everything is fine. Like that kind of thing. I'll look at them and I'll go, this is my skeptical face. <laughs> Right, which is me being playful, 
Right, right. Like I'm almost overdoing the seriousness of it to come out the other side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that's true. I mean, you're you're getting the message across, but in a way that allows them to see, like, yeah, I'm still I'm still with you. We're still connected on the same page, and I'm just kind of letting you know that I don't totally buy this. Uh, and I think that's so great because that's still getting the same message across as if you said, you know, I think you're not telling me the whole truth. But you know, it allows them to feel still connected to you. And my son is doing it back to me. Gavin is doing it back to me because Gavin, the introvert, right, who's willing to carry all the pain in the world on his shoulders. I'll ask him how he's doing and he'll be like, fine. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. Right. <laughs> and so I'll kind of look at him again or I'll say, really? Cause he, for a while now I've had to ask him twice to get the truth out of him. Now, he's much more just straight up with stuff now. So what he started to do now, now that he's giving me the correct answer right away is he nods his head with like this. It's almost like he turns into a cartoon character. Like he just has this like happy look on his face and nods his head at me saying like, no, I'm fine. Like everything is good. And that's him being playful back, right? That's him playing too. And it's it's great. That's great. And I love it. I think every family, I think we do develop these things. And I think if we can just notice kind of what's already going well and kind of when our kids are responding in that positive and playful way, kind of building on that, I think is a great start. One of the things that leads to conflict that you also talk about in this in the book is differences, right? And it's it's generally because we have trouble communicating around these differences that we get to conflict. Can we play a little bit with how to communicate around differences? Sure, definitely. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most important topics that I talk about and that I want to emphasize in the book, just because I think so often we have assumptions about, oh, we shouldn't talk about differences because, you know, kids will become more biased or kids will have stereotypes if we talk about them or they'll say the wrong thing. Um, there's also a lot of fear that we'll say the wrong thing, you know, if kids are trying to ask questions about differences. So I think it's so important to bring these up openly because really only through talking about differences can we help kids understand them and actually celebrate them um, rather than fear them or have lots of misconceptions about them. So I think to actually help kids form their narrative around differences rather than just letting them notice things in society and say, oh, I think it's this way because of Y, or I think you know it's this way because of X reason. So actually to help them build those connections. And it really does start with noticing how each of us is different in some way. So you know, how are you different from the person next to you? How are people in your family different from each other? And to see that in diversity as a strength rather than saying, oh, I wish we were all the same, you know, to sort of notice all the ways that these differences are building each other up, you know, so even having an introvert and an extrovert, you know, you could say, oh, that's a big problem. Or you could say, well, actually, we're able to see things from different perspectives and bring each other new ideas and new ways of doing things. So actually, just to change the frame that way is a big start. And also that it, it's different, but not less, right? It's we're not bringing judgment into this. We're just saying, hey, this person operates like this, this person operates like that. This person is from this culture, this other person is from this other culture, we're from a different culture still. And all of those things are valid and fine and acceptable and and not any less. Exactly. Yeah. And I think too, to even recognize that sometimes you can see differences and that's you know more obvious to talk about, but sometimes, especially on with ADHD or learning differences, you can't always see differences, but that's no that makes them no less important. So actually to notice that and to say, well, let's celebrate those as well and the different ways we think, the different ways we come to ideas, as well as different ways we look and appear and act. So I, I definitely think that both of those levels are things we can talk about. And audience, in case you haven't already noticed, this is a very thorough book. There's a lot of really powerful and really useful information in here 
I can't recommend enough that you go out and buy it and then read it. But unfortunately, we got to bring this in for a landing. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Yes, I think um, it's especially important in today's day and age, really, to realize that we don't have to be having all these deep conversations all the time. So if you want to think about just taking five or 10 minutes out of your day, a couple times a day, and really checking in with your child, kind of seeing what works for you to check in. So not just how are you, but just to actually sit with them, just observe what they're doing, observe how they're interacting with the world and notice along with them, kind of have this curious perspective. You know, how are you approaching things? How are you thinking about things? And just doing that, just sort of giving kids that feeling that you have good ideas, I'm interested in what you have to say, that can often open up the floodgates for kids who really do want to connect. So I think that's really just to recognize that these things accumulate. You don't have to do huge, long conversations to have a really fun experience. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.